So are you up for the challenge? I really hope that over the uh, next uh, 20 weeks, whether you are an accomplished uh, Bible scholar or a Bible translator even, uh, or a Bible novice, uh, that you will join us on our journey through the Bible using these 100 carefully selected readings, 50 from the Old Testament and 50 from the New. And the aim is to read five of those uh, each week starting tomorrow, or tonight, if you're really keen, or some people have already started, which is even better. You can use the uh, guidebook, um, which will help you to understand the passages and give you uh, questions to think about and to help you apply. Or you can simply use the leaflet that was given out to you this morning and and this evening, uh, which has got the same readings inside it. And either way, whether you're using the guidebook or not, um, inside... Uh, There's a a handy grid so that you can mark off um, your progress um, as you uh, go. The challenge is designed to be an opportunity for us all to um, discover the big story of the Bible, God's story of salvation for um, ourselves, but also hopefully to whet your appetite for future uh, incursions into the Bible. And If a hundred readings over 20 weeks seems like something of a marathon, um, then, well, that's what these evenings are for. They are, if you like, the the watering points um, to take stock, to share experiences, to gain fresh insights, hopefully, and to prepare us for the next stage of the journey. So our plan tonight, uh, and on the three subsequent evenings, and the dates are on the back of uh, of the same leaflet, is to provide you with, if you like, a trailer, something which sets the scene for um, all that is coming over the uh, subsequent weeks. But I hope that even if you're not following the challenge, those evening services will be uh, helpful for you in your Bible engagement um, as well. The Bible is is not complex. It's designed to be clear. uh, But there are bound to be some passages which we... Uh, find difficult, that we struggle with. And so after those evening services, we're going to have question and answer sessions, not tonight, but in the subsequent three, and one at the the very end um, when we get to it in June. And that will be your opportunity to ask questions of the things that have puzzled you during the week. So that's how it's it's going to pan out. More of that later. Our reading this evening is taken from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he's pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, 
making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Many ways that the, the word of God, the Bible, is unparalleled. But let us focus particularly on verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You see, the Bible contains many different types of words, and the psalmist lists some of them here. Law and statutes for instruction, precepts applicable to the smaller details of life, commands uh, uh, intended for obedience. But more importantly, if you look down, see how how the psalmist describes God's words. What words does he use? Perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant. I mean, imagine for a moment an advertisement for a book, perhaps, that described in the book as perfect, trustworthy, right, and radiant. You see, if the concept was not rejected by the account director as implausible, an advertisement making these claims for any other book would provoke a host of complaints to the Advertising Standards Authority for unsubstantiated overclaiming. And yet, this is how the psalmist describes the Bible, the Word of God. And nor is this hyperbole. The psalmist clearly believes it as simple fact, because he doesn't stop at describing the product features, if you like, but he goes on to describe its benefits as well. Reviving the soul. Making wise the simple. Giving joy, giving light. So God's words are unparalleled, and that is reason enough for us to read them. But more than that, God's word is useful. Let's never think that the Bible is just there for academic study, however interesting, or for aesthetic appreciation, however inspiring. The psalmist continues the second part of verse 9. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And this is their point. Why? Verse 11, 
By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. In other words, by reading the Bible, we learn what is right and wrong. Which might seem obvious, given that the laws of our land are largely based on biblical teaching. But actually, many people in our culture today wouldn't accept that, would they? They would say that you distinguish between right and wrong based on what actually most people think. If most people think something, then that's probably right. Or others might say, well, it's what the experts say. After all, they have done the thinking about it. Or others, again, might go with whatever tradition dictates. You see, all of these grounds of authority are claimed every day in all sorts of contexts. But they're all limited because they are all human. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that it is God speaking to us directly through the interaction of his written word and the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul put it even more clearly when writing to Timothy, his young disciple, in a familiar verse. He said, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be uh, equipped thoroughly for every good work. So the key points to note from this verse, very briefly, are that all Scripture is is God-breathed. That is to say, it is all, all inspired by God. And this is such a remarkable truth that Paul actually had to invent a Greek word to express it. The words of Scripture carry an authority because they are the expression of the mind and will of God. And the fascinating thing as well is that Paul has no small print exclusions here. He speaks of all Scripture, completely unambiguous and it'll be good to remind ourselves of that as we come to some passages in the challenge which perhaps are more difficult than others. Maybe because they seem to relate to another culture and not to our uh, own time. But note too what it is useful for. Teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. You see, we don't read the Bible to acquire head knowledge. We read the Bible so that we can become better at living in the way that God wants us to live. And it'll be good to remind ourselves of that as well as we work our way through um, difficult passages. We need to ask, what relevance can this have to me? One of the things that excites me um, about the Bible is that despite the fact that it was written by uh, many, many different writers over hundreds of years, there is a clear unity of thought written uh, throughout the, the, the book. And it is clear that the Holy Spirit, that God is inspiring all the way through, through all the different sorts of books, through the different approaches, through the different styles, there is God giving his message of salvation and hopefully we will see that as we work our way through. This is a book written by God even though he uses his agents and the 
It, it tells us about the intervention of God in events, in real-time history. And that brings us to the third reason, is that the Bible is for us to know God. And this, perhaps, is the most important motivation of the lot. Because by reading the Bible, we can know that God is God. We can know that God, the, the infinite God, the creator of the universe, we can know him personally. How can we presume that we can know such a, an infinite being? It is only because God has spoken. It is only because he has taken the initiative to speak to us that we can know him. And one of the prime ways in which God makes himself known is through the Bible. I mean, just suppose, think for about it for a moment. I mean, suppose that you were to want to get to know the Queen. How would you sit about it? You might write her a letter. You might try and ring up. You could stand outside Buckingham Palace with a placard saying, Hi, it's me! Would it do any good? I don't think so. You probably wouldn't get beyond the first flunky on the right, would you? don't think that we can just saunter into the Queen's presence. Why do we think that we can just know God? The only way that we can know God is because he makes himself known to us and he does that through the Bible. And that's important because it shows us what the Bible is. It's not a book of uh, uh, theological propositions and statements. It's a book of stories, a book of history, a book of parables. A book of Proverbs and teaching and all types of strands in the Bible combined. But running through them, you have God revealing himself to us in the things that he does and uh, his explanation about those things. Together, those constitute a revelation of who God is so that we can know him. So finally, how do we read the Bible? Well, the Bible, as I said earlier, is not an obscure book. It's not only for experts. It is written for all God's people. So let's not come to the Bible feeling, fearing that it's going to be difficult. If you follow the Essential 100 guidebook, you'll find that each of the studies follows a simple five-step format. Pray, read, reflect, apply, and pray again. In fact, this is, of course, a pattern that we can use any time that we read um, the Bible. Because in the Bible, God speaks to you, to me, and in prayer, we can respond to him. And a conversation has started up. So we pray before reading, asking God to help us to understand what we are going to read, his word to us. The written prayer in the book is often a good start, but feel free to uh, extend it or use it in other ways. Remember that we're starting a conversation with God. And then read. Read the passage carefully, maybe making notes, and then reflect on it, on what you've read. We are trying to draw out the meaning and how it relates to us and our lives. And only finally can we consider how to put the text into practice. Only when we have understood the meaning of the passage can we progress to the next vital question. How does God intend 
what does God intend for me in general, in particular? How does it affect my thoughts, my words today? It's too easy to jump over the first section often and go straight to the second. So we pray again. You see, reading the Bible involves our whole being, our heart, our mind and our will. And we use our mind to understand the meaning. We engage our hearts to ask how it impacts our lives. which Which only has any relevance if it flows through to our wills and the way that we put it into practice. And so we pray again to ask God to help us put into practice what we have learned. So that's why we read the Bible. The Bible is unparalleled. It is useful. And it is for us to know God. And the most important part of reading the Bible is not what uh, we do, but what God does uh, by his Holy Spirit. We've considered um, why and how we uh, read the Bible, but what is its message? Well, before introducing the first three weeks of of readings, we're going to get a a, a brief overview of how the whole Bible hangs together. I've got a short video to show you. If you've ever used Google Earth, you'll know that you start off with a view of the whole globe. And you can zoom in by continents and country until you can see your own house. We're going to do something similar with the Bible. As we start to think about what's in the Bible, we'll begin by taking a look at how it all fits together. The big overview, the Google Earth view if you like, looks something like this. God makes a good world. We mess it up. God puts it right we all get to enjoy it. Let's travel back to Genesis 1 to see God making the world, sky, land and sea, and filling it with birds, fish, animals and people, a world that he pronounces good. As we look at the big picture, we see that God makes a good world. But when we move on to Genesis 3, we find that it all goes wrong. Human disobedience, and the idea that men and women can run the world better than God can, and without God's help, leads to this beautiful creation being spoiled. The technical term for this is the fall, and it has long-lasting and disastrous consequences. This is the second of our big picture themes. We, that is human beings, mess up the world. But God isn't prepared to leave things that way. He still loves the world he has created, and the people in it, and he plans to put it right. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see God working at his plan, preparing the way. It all points to the coming of Jesus. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he brings us back to God, and deals with all the wrong in the world. This is the third major block. God offers hope for the world through Jesus. The New Testament develops this idea when it looks forward to the time when everything will be completely restored and there is a new heaven and a new earth. There is a great future which we shall all get to enjoy. This 
is the fourth major block. So there's the big overview, standing back and looking at the whole story of the Bible. If we zoom in a little closer, we see that there are different books and blocks of books, different sorts of writing that make up the whole. It's worth noting that in the Old Testament, there's a lot of history, which shows how God works with his people as he prepares for the coming of Jesus. There is prophetic writing, which gives God's perspective on things and looks forward to all that God is going to do. There are laws, which explain how God expects his people to live, and a range of other books, such as Psalms and Proverbs, which show something of how God's people respond in worship and in the struggles of everyday life. The New Testament starts with a special form of history and biography in the Gospels and Acts. These books are followed by letters written to various churches explaining what God has done in Jesus and helping them to make sense of that in a hostile world. The final book in the New Testament is part letter, part prophecy, but takes the form of a special form of writing called apocalyptic, which was common around the time of Jesus. So that's the overview in just four minutes and ten seconds. What I'd like to do in the next few minutes is to just give you a flavour of some of the passages uh, that are coming up over the next three weeks. Think of me, if you like, as a tour guide, helping you to, uh, telling you in advance what you are going to uh, discover, giving you something to look out for on the journey. And I hope that when you encounter those things in uh, the flesh, as it were, you will think, aha, and it will make just a bit more sense. You see, I think actually many Christians start reading the Bible at the New Testament. For them, the Old Testament is a foreign land. Worse still, many people think that the Old Testament has a fundamentally different message to the New. It's just not the case. Many of the themes and truths which we're so familiar with in the New Testament have their roots firmly in the Old Sometimes, for example, we are familiar with a TV program like Only Fools and Horses, for example, and then along comes a prequel. It tells us how it all came about, and that sheds light, apparently, on the the, the series. The only difference here is, of course, the Old Testament was actually written before the New. Indeed, you might think that the primary division of the Bible is between the Old and the New Testaments. But actually, that's not the case. There's a strong case for, being, for saying that the primary division of the Bible is between Genesis chapters 1 to 11 and the rest. Indeed, many of the great themes of the Bible are to be found in those first 11 chapters. And I'd like us to look at a few of them because they can act as signposts for us on our journey through the pages of Scripture. So would you turn to Genesis Chapter 1, verse 1, which is on a page that doesn't have a number, but it's page 3, somewhat confusingly.
The first block, as we saw in the uh, video, is God makes a good world. And this gives us our first signpost uh, on our journey. I've called it God at Work. Because the Bible fundamentally is a book uh, that reveals God, to us, uh, reveals God to us. And it does so through story. Which story which describes God at work on Genesis wastes no time in coming straight to the point. In the beginning, God created. Rob Lacey puts it wonderfully in the street Bible. His version of the first two verses of the Bible go as follows. First off, nothing. No light, no time, no matter. Second off, God. Starts it all up and whap! Stuff everywhere, the cosmos in chaos. No shape, no form, no function, just darkness, total. And floating above it, God's Holy Spirit, ready for action. You can check it out for yourselves, but I counted the word God appeared 30 times in the first chapter of Genesis. God created, God saw, God said... And so as we go through the Bible, we should be looking out for signs of God at work. The second block uh, referred to in the video was where we mess it up. We read in Genesis chapter 2 verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. The fact that God rested doesn't mean that he was tired. It doesn't mean that he had stopped sustaining the universe that he had created. But it's a symbol to us of the fact that the job was done, finished, complete. And it was well done. In fact, it was more than well done. It was perfect. But sadly, that state doesn't last very long. Because it's only in the third chapter of the Bible that we encounter another key theme. Sin. God's instructions to Adam and Eve were not particularly onerous or complicated. But God had built into his creation the freedom of making their own mind up. The freedom to be disobedient. And sadly, that is what they chose to do. Sin entered the world. They didn't allow God to be God, very simply. And their relationship with God, which had been so close and so open, became distant and broken. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. A man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they hide? Because they were ashamed. Along with sin came guilt. The perfect world that God had created had been spoiled, it seems, forever. But that, of course, is just the beginning of the story. As we read through the Bible, let's look out for passages which tell us about man's sin. Because the next big block that we see in the whole Bible, and introduced right here in the first 11 chapters, is that God puts it right. In our third reading in the challenge... We meet Noah. Very sadly, in just ten generations from Adam to Noah, 
the sin that had entered the world with Adam has reached unimaginable proportions. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. That, it seems, is that. The end. Finish. But no. What does the very next verse say? So you make yourself an ark. God was providing a rescue plan for Noah and his family. God acts in grace. Out of his mercy and favour, he provides a way out. This is nothing to do with Noah. Noah, as we shall see later on, was far from perfect. No, it was all about God. And so begins the theme of grace which runs like a silver thread through the tapestry of the whole Bible. Grace, of course, will find its ultimate fulfilment on the cross with the death of Christ. But we can see its roots right here in the sixth chapter of the Bible. Alongside grace, of course, we do see justice. God does indeed destroy the wickedness of the earth. But we also see that God doesn't just pluck Noah out and put him somewhere new. No, the ark, though a means of salvation, was actually a pretty unpleasant place to be. I mean, imagine being locked up with your family in a floating zoo for over a year. But on the other side of the, uh, of the flood comes blessing. And the fourth block of the Bible is when we all get to enjoy it. God remembered Noah and the waters receded. Noah opens the ark and walks out into a new creation. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Echoing, of course, the earlier instruction to Adam. And more than that, God makes a promise to Noah. God said to Noah and his sons, I now establish my covenant with you. This is chapter 9, verse 8. Verse 9. I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you. And this theme of covenant provides us with yet another signpost to look out for on our journey through the Bible. So when you read the word covenant in the Bible, think rainbow. And when you see a rainbow in the sky, think God is faithful. See, fascinatingly, this is not an agreement between equals. It's an entirely unmerited blessing from God to Noah and his sons and all the generations that follow. But there is one more important signpost we need to identify, that of faith. 
You see, although I say that we all enjoy it, we do so by faith in God's provision. Genesis 7 verse 5 says, Noah did all that God commanded him. It would have required, wouldn't it, extraordinary faith to act as he did, to build an ark, a great big boat in the middle of nowhere, miles from any water, not a cloud in the sky. But Noah believed God and acted in faith. Sadly, this new start that God provided was to be short-lived and by the time we get to chapter 11, we find people who say, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. People who thought that their own resources, their own technology, their own insights and understanding would be sufficient to get them to God. And you can read more about that on the fifth reading. But finally this evening, I would just like us to dip our toes into chapter 12, where we find a promise from God which sets up the whole of the rest of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. And this, you see, is a turning point. The very first step in a long journey through which God unfolds his plan of salvation. Here is a promise which points us to the cross. A promise which runs through the rest of the Bible to Revelation. And a very good question to ask yourself as you're reading through the scriptures is, where are we? What does this say about this promise that God made to Abraham? This is the start of a human family through whom ultimately God will bless every family on earth. It'll take a long time. There'll be lots of setbacks along the way. But over the next few chapters, we see how this divine promise, one, uh, one individual becomes a family and then a nation. But before we rush on, let's just pause for one moment to notice that this promise is all about God. Can you see how many times in those four verses God says, I will? And what one word is writ large over that passage? Grace. God, out of his free mercy and grace, decides to do something. Even though he's been greatly sinned against, even though he's been offended by man's rebellion. And what does, God, what does Abraham need to bring to this? Nothing. Except, can you see it in verse 4? What does Abraham to do? Nothing but believe. And what word might we describe that, use to describe that action? Faith. The writer to the Hebrew puts, Hebrews puts it like this. By faith, 
Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. And so we see in just these first four verses of the second part of the Bible, we already have two of our signposts, grace and faith, shining in neon lights, if you like, so bright that we can't miss them. God makes a good world. We mess it up. God puts it right. We all enjoy it. But do you know what? The most exciting part of the story is that actually we're in it. We are part of that story because we are part of the world that God has created. We are made in God's image. We are sons and daughters of Adam. We are separated from God. We mess up. We sin. But God in his grace has provided a way back. The way of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we respond to God's grace in the way that Abraham did, in obedient faith, we too can come to enjoy the perfect world that God created in the new heaven and the new earth. So let us pray that as we embark on this E100 Bible reading challenge, whether we are Bible experts or Bible novices, whether we uh, have read the Bible through from cover to cover many times or only dabbled in certain parts, that we would all gain fresh insights into God's promise and God's grace. That we too might respond in faith and so come to know God more fully and enjoy his relationship with us today.